0: Well, friends, on behalf of Professor David Lovell, Director of the John Howard Prime Ministerial Library, and Ms. Daryl Carp, Director of the Museum of Australian Democracy, I begin today by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people, traditional custodians of the land on which we gather today and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. My name is Andrew Blythe and I am the Group Manager of the Public Leadership Research Group and Howard Library and I acknowledge that we do have Professor David Lovell, the Director of the Howard Library at the back with us and our GUN archivist uh, Trish Burgess is with us as well. I welcome our guest speakers Troy Bramston and Michelle Grattan, and thank in advance Bernie Wright, Deputy Chair of the Museum of Australian Democracy for delivering a vote of thanks at the conclusion of proceedings. And I welcome all of you to this special event being held in this august and historic building. Some of you may know the building celebrated its 95th birthday on May 9. Its original purpose was to be a provisional parliament that ended up functioning for 61 years, from 1927 to 1988, as the nation's parliament. As I look over at Michelle, who worked here as a member of the Press Gallery in the 1970s and 1980s, I hope I'm not alone in being grateful that the building stands as a living museum. I'm sure it would have made for a nice hotel, but I cannot think of a building richer and more vibrant anywhere in Australia to remind us of our social and political history. Our special guest speaker tonight is Troy Bramston. Troy is a senior writer and columnist uh, with The Australian. He's interviewed politicians, Presidents and Prime Ministers, and told me tonight even grandsons of former Presidents, um, from, uh, and Prime Ministers from multiple countries along with writers, actors, directors, producers and several pop culture icons. He is an award-winning and best-selling author, of 11, uh, sorry, author or editor of 11 books including Bob Hawke, Demons and Destiny, Paul Keating, The Big Picture Leader and Robert Menzies, The Art of Politics. He co-authored The Truth of the Palace Letters and the Dismissal with Paul Kelly. Our conversation host is the legendary Michelle Grattan AO. Specialising in political journalism, she has written for and edited many significant Australian newspapers and was the first woman to become editor of an Australian metropolitan daily newspaper, The Canberra Times. Michelle is editor of the authoritative volume Australian Prime Ministers, first published in 2000. Michelle was awarded the Order of Australia in 2004 for services to journalism through commentary on politics and government and analysis of Australian civic life. She is currently the chief political correspondent with The Conversation, Australia's largest independent news website. Michelle, we're in your hands.
1: Well, thank you very much and uh, I'm delighted to be um, back in this building tonight. As uh, you said, it's a, uh, it's a great building, a historic place. And delighted also to be here with Troy to ask him about his, uh, his book, which I really enjoyed. And uh, OK, this is an ad, but we didn't collude beforehand. Uh, it, it's well worth uh, buying, and uh, all you'll need is a small truck to cart it away. <laughs> Now, Troy, on that note, it is an enormous book and it's not your first enormous book. Can you tell us something about the writing of this book, how long it took, how you went about it and any of the um, anecdotes you might have uh, about that particular journey?
2: Well, thank you, Michelle, and um, thank you, Andrew. And thank you all all for coming. It's great to be here in this magnificent building and to share a a stage with Michelle. Um, Look, uh, these things take a long time. Um, I probably spent about five or six years doing archival research and interviews, something you sort of build up over a number of years. When I was doing my Paul Keating biography, which I wrote mostly in 2014, 15 and 16, I was sort of collecting things along the way. So there's a lot of things in the book that... Um, have surprised people that have been revealed that I knew five years ago and was just sort of waiting for this next book um, to put them in. So I, I spent a lot of time doing the research, doing the interviews um, and take sort of any opportunity I can. And if you do that over a few years, you find that you know you build up a steady a steady story as you go along. You know I might be writing something for the newspaper one day, but take an opportunity to spend an hour interviewing someone during the middle of the day or uh, quickly visiting an archive or something like that um i probably did most of the writing in 2020 and 2021. um like you as a journalist you learn to write fast uh, and to analyze material quickly and i knew that i had a, I had a publishing deadline coming so i was able to work uh fast to that deadline but it, you know it's it's not easy i mean it's enjoyable that's uh, but it's frustrating and it's a lengthy process and you know my wife is here here tonight would know that i'd spend many many mornings uh, early morning many late nights many weekends um, and that's what it requires but if you enjoy what you're doing and you love it um, then that sort of keeps keeps you going but i must say uh, when i sort of submitted the first cut of the manuscript on i think it was april fool's day 2021 (laughs) um, uh, i felt like a bit of a fool for undertaking the project because it nearly killed me i mean i had to i was doing a lot of a lot of hours um to get it to get it done and and it was completely exhausting um and it is a big book it could have been bigger um I mean remember remember Kevin Rudd published two thousand pages of his of, of his memoir uh in two volumes and he was prime minister for two and a half years so um it could have been a lot bigger um but yeah look it's a it's a process that I've that I've found worked. you worked. Know, do, do the research, do the interviews, think about it over a long period of time and then focus for a couple of years writing.
1: Now you obviously spent a lot of time with Hawke himself. Uh, was that over a period and um, we all remember Hawke I think as being rather volatile. Did you find him sometimes in a good mood and, and sometimes in a less good mood?
2: Yeah look he was lo- lo- like you'd expect him to be. Sometimes he was a little bit cranky, a little bit tetchy, Um, but most of the time he was very welcoming and very open. Um, I think I did about 15, sorry, I did about 20 interviews with him over 15 years, but about half a dozen or so for this book, uh, including the last ever interview that he gave uh, just a few months before he died. And of course, I didn't know that he was about to die, but uh, it was was a particularly uh, poignant interview when he was very reflective and very emotional. He was talking about his, uh, he was very emotional talking about his father, talking about his mother, talked about how much he loved uh, Paul Keating and they had, you know, patched things up and um, talked about, um, you know, some of the things that he achieved and r- the regrets he had in his life about not being a better husband, not being a better father. So it was sort of strange that at the end of his life in this sort of final interview, he was very uh, reflective, mellowed. Uh, very mellowed and very sort of emotional as well. Um, so it was particularly poignant, but um, look, I challenged him on a lot of things. It's not what you might think that made him cranky. For example, you know, we'll, we can talk about it, but you know, the womanising or the drinking or the emotional outbursts or the language, they're not the things that he got cranky about when I asked him about them or challenged him on it. It was things like that he didn't perform well in the 1984 election um, or he lost the, the televised debate to Andrew Peacock those things got him really cranky and got really, you know, really upset and I'd said, you know, you didn't really perform that well and he'd go, oh, well, you know, I think I did pretty good. We won, didn't we? Um, and I'd say, yeah, but Andrew Peacock beat you in the debate and Peacock won more seats than people thought and he'd say, well, well, you know, it was only because he wasn't up against the real Bob Hawke, meaning that people might remember he had the cricket ball go into his eye, uh, playing the Prime Minister's 11 match, he had some prob- family problems. Uh, He'd been emotionally in turmoil, so his argument to me was, you know, Peacock wasn't fighting the real Bob Hawke; he was fighting a handicapped hawk. But that that was the way Hawke sort of spoke and sort of tried to rationalise things. But generally, he was—he was very open, and um, you know, he didn't really hide anything at all. He was—he was. I think that's one of the secrets to understanding Bob as a political leader: is that people saw him as authentic because they knew he had flaws. But he was open about them, and his journey, his life, was a journey of redemption um, and reform. And he was, uh, you know, he was always forgiven um, by the Australian people, much to the, um, you know, disappointment of his political opponents.
1: I've always thought that he ran a, in a good government. I have thought that in retrospect. But reading your book, I must say I, I felt or was reminded that in many ways, personally, he wasn't a very pleasant person. He didn't treat, there are a whole lot of people that he treated badly, most notably Hazel, of course, but others too. And that raises the question of whether someone can be a good prime minister and the sort of prime minister we want and yet be something of a bastard as a person.
2: Yeah, look, it's an important question, something we, we have to grapple with about what we look for in our political leaders. You know, character matters. Um, Hawke, um, you know, it's important to unpack this a little bit. If you ever accused Hawke of lying, he would get very angry. Uh, he, never, he, he thought he was a person of integrity. He thought he was a person of, of moral values, um, a person who believed in you know good government, good processes. So a, any sort of attack on his ability to do a job um he would get very upset about um but he was open about those flaws in his character and he
1: lied to hazel all the time
2: he lied to her all the time he lied to the children and you know i was able to interview susan and stephen hawke his son and daughter um and they lived with the sort of roiling turmoil um that most other australians saw on television or read in the newspaper or had only been hinted at they saw him drunk at home they saw him uh, they saw they had women he was having affairs with, you know. who would write letters to the house. The kids would open the mail. Um, they would ring. They would ring the home, and Hazel would answer the answer the phone. And they'd say, you know, I'm I'm in a relationship with your husband. When are you going to leave him? Or, um, you know, you know all these sort of things. They lived with. They got a, They got criticised and attacked at school. Um, Stephen Hawke even changed his name to Masterson uh, at one point, which was his mother's maiden name. So it was very very difficult for them. And I think. You know, it I don't know if I've got the right answer on this Michelle because or if there is a right answer because we don't actually know a lot about our politicians' private lives. I mean, sometimes they they burst into the open and we've seen a number of scandals in recent years, but do we really know what Scott Morrison or Anthony Albanese is like? Do we really know what they're like behind the scenes and does it really matter?
1: Well, that's the point, isn't it? We've been through an election where character was a big issue. But is really the only thing that matters, that the politician has a good character in his or her public life, doesn't lie in their public life, and what they do privately doesn't matter.
2: That was certainly Hawke's view. Uh, there's a famous book called The Endless Adventure, written by a guy by the name of F.S. Oliver, about the first British Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole. And in the opening, and I quote it in the book, in, in the opening chapter, um oliver who was like a political scientist and historian he argued that what matters is what a politician does in the public realm their private life is irrelevant to that Uh, and Hawke, you know furiously underlined those paragraphs (laughs) in in the book and 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 that was key for him he felt that as well Um, but i do think standards have changed i think where uh someone's (laughs) private life impacts on their public duties um say barnaby joyce for example having a relationship with a staff member then lying about it to Malcolm Turnbull, uh, lying about <coughs> it to the Australian people. That's a different thing. Um, Hawke, the thing about Hawke was he never lied about it. I mean, we may not have known or understood the extent of the drinking or the womanising or the affairs, but he never hid who he was. Um, and he openly admitted his infidelity and his drinking but problem.
1: he had an affair with a staffer, and I think we, we didn't know about it, did we, until later...
2: No, um, but some in the press gallery may have known about it. Um, in fact, I know some, some journalists in the press gallery knew about Hawke's extramarital affairs, a, a long-standing member of his staff. It was his personal secretary, Jean Sinclair, who'd been with him for a, a long, long time. He had a, a relationship with her. Um, John Brown, the former sports minister, told me that he was pursuing women in this building um, day and night, and, and he and Hawke often traded information about women <laughs> they might be able to take home. Um, So, you know, it's a different world, it's a different environment. I don't think it's acceptable then, let me be clear about that. Uh, And I don't think it's acceptable now. And I think the media have a different standard now which they apply to politicians. I think the public have a different standard that they apply to (coughs) politicians. And so let's, you know, think about that and and what that actually means because I don't believe in cancel culture, but if we canceled Hawke for his personal failures, then we would miss out on what was a very effective prime minister and a very effective government. So we need to have a balance about that. The key is, I think, it's hypocrisy. So the Barnaby Joyce case is, is hypocritical. Um, Hawke wasn't. Hawke, everyone knew his flaws, understood them, but he still did things that wouldn't be acceptable today.
1: Just before we move off this question of character, Hawke seemed to be someone who um, other people always wanted to... Provide things for, give things to, pay for things. Um, Peter Abels was the the most um, notable example of this, perhaps. So, and this happened when he was trade union leader, and and when he was prime minister, and even afterwards, an arrangement with a clothing company or yeah. something, or some maybe that was some other deal. But was he? corrupt in that sense of accepting largesse, especially on the way up. Is that, is that a corruption?
2: Yeah, this is one of the things I had to explore in the book. Some people may remember Peter Abels was a, a well-known transport magnate, a, a prominent businessman. He was very close to Hawke. Uh, he's probably Hawke's closest friend. Um, now, Abels provided Hawke with money. He paid his hotel bills, organised cars, found jobs for girlfriends that hawk uh, wanted to you know uh, forget about for a while um, he paid the kids school fees um, he did a lot of things for hawk um, drinks cigars all sorts of things uh, and even procured women for hawk particularly when he was in sydney and melbourne uh, traveling so it's a friendship um, but it's an un- it's one that makes for uncomfortable reading um, now all these things back then were not illegal, so in a sense of corruption, um, like political parties, you know, used to be able to used to accept money literally in paper bags full of cash, right? That's how, before we had f- financial disclosure laws, um, that's how it would operate. Now Hawke benefited from that; he didn't think there was anything wrong with it. But there's another issue about integrity, and so it's actually interesting that we've been talking so much about an integrity commission. Now Hawke, what Hawke did was probably Didn't have integrity about it but it doesn't mean that it was illegal or that it was corrupt so these are loaded terms and uh we will have i think an integrity commission soon at the national level and um you know something like for example gladys gladys berejiklin has gone through in new south wales politics she may be found to be corrupt (coughs) under the act but she won't be prosecuted or sent to jail it'll be it'll be seen as an ethical and integrity lapse so, anyway, I'm getting a bit off-tangent off there. But, look, I mean, Hawke... Yes, what Hawke did was, was unacceptable by today's standards, but it wouldn't be, I think, corrupt.
1: OK, now, um, Anthony Albanese is um, talking about um, following the Hawke uh, process of consensus and, um, uh, indeed, um, even talking about a, a summit, a job summit, in his case. But do you think that the whole consensus model can be replicated today or do you think it was very much dependent on Hawke's personality, on the relationships that he brought to the job the, the, and formalised in the Accord, of course, and on the times when people were perhaps less cynical, when politics was adversarial but not quite as it is today? Yeah,
2: look, it's interesting because Bob Hawke has become a model for every other subsequent Labor leader except Paul Keating, um, of course. (laughs) Um, But it's true, you know, people still look to the the Hawke model. And we saw Anthony Albanese during the election campaign say he wanted to lead like Hawke. He's wanted to have a summit like Hawke. You know, when I interviewed him about cabinet processes and things like that, he said, you know, Hawke is my model for how to run a cabinet, how to run a government, how to deal with the public service and staff and things like that. he talks about consensus. Um, consensus is a word easy to use. Hawke never saw consensus as about reaching total agreement. Hawke saw it as finding common ground and being able to make progress on common ground. Now, we have a very different economy. We have a very different industrial relations landscape. I mean, about 50% of people were in members of trade unions in 1983. Today, it's below 20%. Um, so. Is there going to be an accord style relationship? No, there's not. Um, But I think um, that if Anthony Albanese can get business groups and trade unions to work together, and I think there is a bit of what he called conflict fatigue, and we have seen the Business Council and the ACTU say they want to work with the government, and they do want to try to reset um, the the relationships between capital and labour in the national interest. So I'm encouraged by these remarks, but is Anthony Albanese the next Bob Hawke? That's another question. I don't think he is. That's probably too kind to Anthony Albanese, but we'll see how he goes. And the other point I'd make quickly about that, Michelle, is that at the basis of Hawke's approach for consensus and summary and conciliation was his personality and his popularity. I mean, this is a guy, I was astonished to find a Gallup poll from 1984 where he had a 78% approval rating as prime minister in his second year. Now, no, no Prime Minister before or since has come within Cooee of that figure, so Hawke's consensus approach worked, um, but a large part of it was his personal style, his personal popularity. People trusted him, they respected him. He was safe, reassuring, he was optimistic, confident, and that's what I think people liked about him.
1: Now we've just uh, had a, a new ministry sworn in. and. Uh Anthony Albanese has pointed out that uh, many have served before and he says they're the most experienced since Federation on the Labor side, I think he, he said. Hawke had a particularly talented ministry and people who were very strong in their own right, strong personalities, Keating, John Button, Dawkins, Gareth Evans. How did he manage that team? And can you give us a few uh, anecdotes about some of those people?
2: Yeah, look, it was an extraordinary team. I mean, you know, Keating and Bill Hayden and Lionel Bowen had served in the Whitlam government. They They were ministers there. So had Tommy Wren, but he was in the outer ministry. So not many of them had actually come to this position of government with ministerial experience, but they had diversity of life and work experience. So think about, you know, Bill Hayden's a former policeman, um, Mick Young's a former shearer. Um, Don Grimes is a is a doctor. Uh, Peter Walsh is a is a farmer. Um, you know the Susan Ryan was a was a teacher. Gareth Evans was an academic. There were former trade unionists there. Um, you know so there's a very diverse group of people from right across um, the country, and they did work um, very effectively together. There were big personalities and big egos, but it came down to Hawke's style because Hawke said to his ministers, there are. this is the way he wanted to operate. He said, "Um, there are only two instances when I would ever intervene in your portfolio. One is if there's a problem for the government and it requires prime ministerial intervention. Or number two, he had a personal interest. And the only areas where he had a real personal interest were the economy uh, and foreign policy. But he was able to work for the most part pretty effectively with Keating on economic policy. They did have some spectacular blow ups from time to time. But for the most part, they did work pretty well together. Um, and he worked very well with Bill Hayden. it was something that I talked to Bill Hayden about. I talked to Hawke about. Um, and Kim Beazley, as the defence minister, I wanted to get a good insight into the Hawke-Hayden relationship. And and uh, Beazley said, look, Hawke was very mindful of the fact that Bill had been Labor leader. Um, and Hayden was very respectful of Hawke becoming prime minister. So. These big egos were able to work together. Now, you know, Hayden had the Labor leadership taken from him in tragic emotional circumstances on the on the day the 1983 election was held. And Labor's polling showed he would probably lead Labor to victory, but it wasn't certain. Um, but it was very difficult for him. And when Hawke um, did take that leadership from Hayden, it was not a moment of triumph. It was a motion of, of tears. Hawke cried and Hayden cried. Um, But the thing is, you look at Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison, Rudd, Gillard, um, they all put knives into each other's back. But Hawke and Hawke and Hayden worked very effectively together uh, and they were able to put the country first. So, um, yeah, I mean, they had very robust debates, um, very spirited debates in cabinet and something like Gareth Evans's diary, which you can read now, um, shows some pretty vitriolic exchanges um but they were able to um do that in what what they saw as a robust debate about policy and then okay there might have been some some up some people upset from time to time but it didn't lead to leaks it didn't lead to destabilization it didn't lead to a derailing of the agenda they just got on with the job so very professional in how they approached it and i know this has been very influential for the incoming labor government too they've looked um at i've read about this yesterday in the australian they've looked to hawk Rather than Rudd or Gillard for how to run a government,
1: but of course the relationship with Keating was uh, incredibly up and down. Not just at the end, but over the years, wasn't it? I remember being on a trip when um, uh, Keating. I think it was the the um, uh, one of his uh, banana republic Republic, uh, uh, comment, perhaps. And he and you recount this, uh, Hawke told the travelling media what he was going to tell Cabinet, and the next day the Cabinet, um, or at least Keating, ticked off the points from the the newspapers. So just talk a little about that relationship.
2: Look, it's a fascinating relationship, Hawke and Keating. You know, they had talked about the Labor leadership as early as 1979 or 1980, uh, before Hawke was even a member of parliament, when Hawke won preselection. For the Victorian Cedar of wills one of the first things he did he called Keating and said we're going to have to work together um, about the leadership and I, I can see a-, a future where I'm the leader and you're my deputy and Keating <laughs> said uh, I think you've got it around the, the wrong way there Bob um, and in fact Hawke went to the U.S. I think in 1982 it's in the book or 1981 he talked to U.S. diplomats and it leaked um, that Hawke had told them That he imagined leading Labor to victory in 1983 with Paul Keating as his deputy. Um, So they had they had clearly talked about it. Um, They but they were very different personalities. Sydney, Melbourne, essentially Hawke, essentially Melbourne, long time there at the ACTU. Um, You know, Hawke. So very different personalities, uh, very different backgrounds. Um, Keating had come to this place in 1969 um, at age 25. Um, Hawke didn't get here till 1980. Um, Keating thought that Hawke needed to wait his time. He was on a leadership list and he was well down that list. Um, But of course, what happened is um, in early 1983, Bill Hayden shook up the shadow ministry and made Keating shadow treasurer. And then there's an election just a couple of months later. So Keating's the treasurer and he's got to work with Hawke. So they did work pretty well together. I think for the first year, most people would acknowledge that it took keating a little while to be confident in the role understand where all the economic levers were Um, Hawke was certainly trying to steer economic policy but not in a domineering way Um, and you know they did work pretty effectively together they were friends you know keating and Hawke would catch up together at the lodge on the weekend Uh, they'd have barbecues together the kids would be running around on the on the lawn of the lodge Um, they were close keating would come up Keating's office was downstairs in this building as treasurer. He would pop upstairs and have a cigar with Hawk um, at the end of the day. Consider that John Howard never invited Peter Costello uh, to the lodge once for dinner um, in their 11 and a half years in government. So they had a friendship. It was bonded in government, but there was going to be a fracture at some point because of the leadership. Keating wanted the leadership. And should we talk about the, the Kirribilli agreement? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Keating wanted the job. He kept pressuring Hawke for it. And then eventually in 1988 at Kirribilli House, they came together with a meeting. Keating wanted a meeting to talk about the leadership. Um, Hawke brought along Peter Ables, Keating brought along Bill Kelty. They decided to hammer it out. It was a very quick meeting. Um, and Hawke said he would, he would hand over the leadership after the 1990 election. He did that because he was worried Keating was gonna leave uh, parliament uh, he wanted to go to the 1990 election as another as a leadership team, um, wanted Keating part of it. Uh, Keating accepted that. Uh, there was one one condition on that agreement, which was that if it leaked, it was void. So no one could ever talk about it publicly. In the book, I include in the appendix, Hawke's note of that meeting and Keating's note of that meeting, both written a bit after. Um, but it's fascinating to see how they both recalled that meeting. Now when I sort of unpacked this, Michelle, I was fascinated to know that Keating within a year or two had told all of his senior advisers about the meeting with Hawke. Hawke told no one in his office, no one at all. Uh, So I think that Hawke never had any intention of keeping that agreement and in fact he didn't keep that agreement and their relationship exploded and Keating of course launched two leadership challenges and took the job off Hawke. I think it's a mistake that Hawke didn't keep that agreement and facilitate a leadership transition as he had promised. And when I talked to all of Hawke's key supporters, so Robert Ray, Gareth Evans, Kim Beasley, Nick Bolkus, uh Jerry Hand uh, and others, they all thought Hawke should have stuck to that agreement. They thought you make an agreement, you've got to stick to it. And he didn't do it.
1: And at one stage, there were about six of the ministers who went to Hawke, yeah. didn't they? and um, tried to persuade him to stand down and he essentially said no and they retreated like mice.
2: That's right. And it's humiliating to think that Kim Beazley was uh, deputized as the spokesman for the group of six, as they called it. And he had Kim Beazley stood in the corridor of new Parliament House. I'm sure you were there, Michelle. And he said, ministers went in and told Bob (laughs) Hawke, we think you should resign. He said no. And the ministers endorsed that view. (laughs) (laughs)
1: um <laughs> I suppose you get struck by the fact that these characters are very primal aren't they they be their emotions and their ambitions and so on are so open much of the time and yet when they're thwarted they've got to get together again and work together and pretend nothing had happened or whatever
2: yeah and and I should I should say that they they did that pretty well in in the, in the Keating government Keating you know, Keating relied on Hawke's big supporters for the rest of his, his government and um, they all think he, he was a, a, an effective Prime Minister. I should just add one more point about Hawke and Keating, which is I've often described the relationship as like brothers. You know, there, there's rivalry, there's a bit of contempt there from time to time. They hate each other, but they still love each other. And love's a big word, but I think it's right. And um, Hawke Hawk told me that he loved Keating. And when I said to Keating, do you love Hawke? He was like, oh, I don't know if I'd use that term, but you know, let's call it deep affection. So, so Keating had had that view, and and they they did they did have that. They had that real bonding position in government. They they changed the country together, um, and and so they were proud of what they did, and it's just so you know emotionally significant that at the end of Hawke's life, they come together um, for a final two meetings um, at the end of 2018. And um, you know, I, in the book, we uh, is Keating's first detailed account of those meetings, and it's very emotional to hear Keating talking about you know being with Hawke the last time, and and Hawke says to him, um, you know, I'm going to die soon, um, but I wanted you here, I wanted to see you again, um, and Keating tried to make light of it, saying, oh, Bob, you know, you're not going to die yet, you'll you'll live you'll live for a, many years many years yet. Um, so it, it's a fascinating relationship. I, I really don't think there's probably anything like it other than perhaps you know um, John Curtin and Ben Shifley, but there's a real bond there, um, but a lot of division too.
1: It's sort of the glue of power and then the, the yeah. memory of power, isn't it? I just wanted to touch on a couple of things before I open it up for questions. One is that I think we romanticise the 80s as this great reform era that so much was done, that somehow it was all smooth, that there weren't huge fights within government and that the, uh, uh, the opposition went along with things. But in fact, the left was very strong in those days in the caucus, wasn't it? And uh, they really kicked up very noisily over a whole lot of things. And the then opposition did resist quite a few things. Could you just elaborate on those couple of points?
2: Yeah, look, the left faction in the Labor Party was much stronger than it was now. Um, It was the Cold War. Uh, There were ideological differences between the left and the right faction. There was also a very strong centre-left faction within the Labor Caucus, which doesn't exist uh, anymore. And often it came down to, you know, the Labor's National Conference would have 100 people um, in that that period, um, and they would review policies like the flow to the dollar, privatising the Commonwealth Bank, deregulating the airlines, having Australian Airlines and Qantas merge and then be sold, all these kind of things. Uh, And it often came down to just a handful of votes about whether the government's policies would be derailed or not. It was the right faction relying on the support of the centre-left faction to get these things through. So it was often a very close-run thing. They didn't have the division in caucus like the Whitlam government did. One of the key reasons for that um, was this principle, not only of solidarity, um, but a commitment within the cabinet process that if a minister lost an argument in cabinet, they could not go to the caucus to try to overturn that. So there was a, there was a cabinet solidarity. Um, in terms of the opposition, I think this has somewhat been romanticised as well. Um, I don't, you know, John Howard and Andrew Peacock and John Hewson and others have liked to have said that there was a lot of agreement on policies. Well, there was some agreement. And often the criticisms on, say, tariff reductions um, or privatisations or fiscal consolidation, we're not opposing those decisions. Um, so that's helpful, of course, um, but they're often are arguing they should go further, should do more. Um, and, you know, Hawke never liked the argument that John Howard has put that Howard was a partner in the economic <laughs> reform program from, from opposition. Um, John Howard and the opposition didn't support um, superannuation, uh, for example. They didn't support some of the other big reforms like Medicare. Um, and so it's a, it's a mixed story. Um, and one of the most interesting is about the float of the dollar. So John Howard supported the float of the dollar, um, but Andrew Peacock didn't. And Andrew Peacock was the liberal leader at the time. Malcolm Fraser, as the former prime minister, didn't support it. And Doug Anthony, as the national party leader, he didn't support it either. But Howard was able to mute those voices uh, and carry the opposition, essentially supporting um, the float of the dollar. But it was by no means um, wholehearted. I think they were a bit cautious, like many people were, about seeing how the float of the dollar went. So, um, yeah, I mean, I asked Hawke about this, and he just said, "Well, well, I didn't need the support of the opposition. I had the support of the Australian people." You know, so that was his, that was his kind of view.
1: Well, we're here under the auspices of the uh, Howard Library. So, uh, before we hand over to questions, let's. Uh, just briefly um, get you to talk about that relationship between Hawke and Howard, which wasn't so close, I don't think, in those days, as happened, uh, of course, later. And also, when they did face off in that uh, 87 election, how do you think Howard went, given that he went into that election, in appalling circumstances with the Joe for Canberra Um, movement uh, really disrupting things that year and uh, also a a big mistake in his tax policy in the campaign.
2: That's right. So the the coalition had fractured by the time of the 1987 election. So John Howard was leading the Liberal Party with one arm behind his back. Howard I think campaigned very well. When I went back and looked at the news reports and read Mm. the newspaper reports, he was a pretty good um, campaigner and very effective. He was in fact so effective um, that Hawke refused to debate Howard. So there'd been the first ever televised debate in 1984 uh, with Andrew Peacock and John Howard and as I mentioned earlier Hawke lost that debate and so he wouldn't debate Howard. Howard was seen as a very effective debater particularly in the parliament and so Hawke avoided that and he was criticised. When I interviewed John Howard for the book he he was very sort of cranky uh, you know in a fun way about the media saying the media really should have gone harder on Hawke for refusing to debate him Um, but of course Howard had did have a big hole in his tax policy, um, he had the coalition problems as well, um, and uh, he was he was he was fighting, I think, a losing battle. Labor's internal research showed that it was the Hawke Keating leadership team, which was very effective for Labor in that campaign, and economic management. So there'd been the Banana Republic, um, there'd been a recession when they'd come into into, into government. Um, there was a lot of economic turbulence, but voters still thought that Hawke and Keating were best able to manage that economic turbulence. And the government had asked a lot of the Australian people moderating wages, for example, with the Accord, but they still thought that Hawke and Keating were the best team. The other thing about that 1987 campaign is uh, the environment started to become, for the first time, a really big issue. Um, And I was able to reveal in the book that the Australian Conservation Foundation, and it was another green group, I think it was the Wilderness Society in Tasmania, put ads on television saying we endorse labour's policies now that's not new what i was able to work out is that the labour party secretly paid for those ads uh, to be on television um, because uh, we wouldn't expect these green groups to have that kind of money so that was a big issue but Hawke did respect howard he thought howard was the most substantial liberal leader that he faced he faced andrew peacock malcolm fraser and john hewson um, after the 1990 election he thought howard was the best and when i asked him to survey. Uh, liberal leaders and prime ministers later on, looking back um, at the end of his life, he still thought Howard was the best um, of the liberal leaders, and they did have an affection and a regard for each other, respect for each other. Um, when Howard surpassed Hawke as the second most, uh, second longest-serving prime minister, um, Hawke wrote Howard a letter to congratulate him and to acknowledge the milestone and say he. He respects him, and that letter's in the book, and so is um, John Howard's uh, reply. And later on in life, they did do it, including here, I came to an event, I think in this room, where they did an event, event together. So um, there was respect, but it was not so much, You know, they had big policy differences, let's not downplay those, um, but Hawke respected Howard as a politician, respected his tenacity, his conviction.
1: Well, we might open it up now to um, some questions, so who would like to start, the gentleman
3: here? It's, nice um, uh, it's very interesting to hear you talk. I'm going to ask a sort of funny parallel, and I'm going to, ter- in terms of John Kennedy as president and him womanising, and yet he had very great policies and was able to achieve a lot. There's Bob Hawke and his womanising and what he was able to achieve, How do you think that would go in modern circumstances with somebody having the same sort of modern politician having all this womanizing? Would the um, media keep quiet about it? Or do you think they'd expose it and sort of show this man has not got the integrity that he was thought of?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I once um, said (laughs) said to Bob that um, the political figure that I most admire was Robert Kennedy. And his his response to that was, oh, Robert and John, what, what they got up to, you wouldn't believe. Um, which I found ironic. Um, but, um, <laughs> Did he? <laughs> no, probably not. Um, look, I mean, again, it's. Um, I think the media had different standards. Um, we didn't. The media, certainly, the White House press corps never reported any of those uh, things that um, Kennedy was up to, even though they knew they knew about it. Um, and so, same with with Hawke. Uh, some members of the press gallery understood it and knew about it uh, and didn't report it um i think the difference though and i don't want to defend Hawke. so i don't think i'm defending him Hawke again didn't lie about it you know he even as prime minister he went on clive robertson's newsworld program in 1989 and admitted his infidelity when he was prime minister now john f kennedy never did anything like that um, um but you know it, it's both cruel it's cruel what they did to their families um and and this, that's a standard uh, we don't accept anymore i think community doesn't accept that anymore, in their politicians, and the media doesn't, and I think that's a that's a good thing. Next
0: Perhaps if you could also say your name. Uh,
4: okay, um, Peter Taft. Uh, during the entirety of the Hawke Prime Ministership, the Australian Democrats held the balance of power in the upper house, uh, which is directly relevant to what you were talking about getting legislation through. So as much as Hawke and Keating might have liked to say the Australian people support us, uh, they needed uh, Don Chip, Janine Haynes and their party. So how much of the book, I guess, covers the negotiations? Did Hawke himself uh, engage much in the negotiations to get legislation through with the Democrats? Or was there some other process involved there Um, and how many I guess with all the interviews that you did for the book, you've said over a hundred, uh, were with people involved with the Democrats or with any of the former senators. I'm not sure if any are still alive, but um, you know how much of that was was uh, did you engage with the Democrats in terms of putting this book and indeed perhaps your your, your other ones together?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, um, I actually don't think the Democrats were all that significant in passing legislation because um, the Labor Party had coalition support most of the time for their budget measures and and so on so there were not many many instances where it came down to the Democrats in the Senate being critical on a, on an element of policy that Hawke was personally involved in so I actually don't write a lot about that in my Paul Keating biography I wrote a lot about the Democrats um, and in, and in particular Cheryl Kerno and her role with the Marbo negotiations and things like that um, but no, I mean, Hawke had a good relationship with Don Chip, um, they were quite friendly with each other, went went to the races, um, they're both both in Melbourne um, and so on, they liked each other. Um, but no, I don't uh, write a lot about that and the reason is it never really came onto my radar as something that Hawke was particularly focused on or felt he needed to. And I think the reason for that is because they did have coalition support in the Senate for, for most of the things that would have been contentious, particularly budget bills. Hi, um, <coughs> Campbell Rhodes um, from Moad, coincidentally. Um, in the book, there are some fairly, I think it's safe to say warts and all moments. Um, there, there are parts of the book where I've actually read it and I've gone, really? Um, one of those moments being uh, the revelation, and I can't believe this got this didn't get out, that Bob Hawke from time to time used to greet his guests in the All Together, um, particularly at the Lodge. So I guess my question is, in the researching this book and in talking to all of the people who knew Hawke, is there anything that really surprised or shocked you, and that you you never thought you would actually learn or or find out? Uh, look, um, Hawke did like to be naked. Um, he liked to be naked um, in the ACTU days. His staff often saw him naked. Uh, there's many stories of politicians opening a, a door to a hotel room and finding Hawke naked. Um, Bill Hayden tells a great story um about being in one of the alp conferences at the rest point casino and going to see hawk and hawk's completely naked and hayden's recollection is that um he would he had heard so much about the size of hawk's important appendage um and was shocked at how small it was um, so that's what bill told me and then when bill wrote that in his own memoir um he bill rang me one day when i was working on the book and said oh, i want to tell you another story which is that after he had made that story public, um, Hawke had confronted him at a, at a function at, uh, uh, in New Parliament House, up, up on the hill, of course. Um, and Hawke came in very close to him and said, uh, don't ever say that again about, you know, the size of my, you know what. Um, and then gave him a little bit of a jab into the tummy and Hayden fell back on the chair. Um, and so he was very upset about uh, any, any uh, you know, measurements being done, let's put it that way. Um, but yeah look that's just who he was you know paul keating says he went to the lodge a few times and hawks lying on the banana lounge by the pool naked reading cabinet papers um so yeah look there are lots of things i mean the hardest thing for me to write was about the infidelity um and about some of the things that hazel and the children had to put up with it's very difficult to write about that um, and to understand it and to unpack it and explain it um, put it into words um, (laughs) and try to put yourself in their shoes, you know, what what they're feeling, what it was like. Um, and, you know, some of the um, most t- terrible things I found were these letters that Bob wrote to Hazel when he was at Oxford University and she was going to join him. Um, and in these letters, he's pouring out his soul. He's saying that he's wrestling with his demons. He can't contain his sexual drive. Uh, and he's not able to maintain his his faithfulness to her and he needs her to come to oxford as soon as possible now okay he's in his 20s um, but it's all there in the letters and that's that's hard to write about and and the way he, he talks to her the way he treated her um, was really terrible at times and it was difficult and hard for me to talk to the children about that um, as well so look you know there parts of this book are shocking and they are surprising and very disappointing um Hawk was not a well michelle said a bastard but that's right i mean he wasn't a very nice person but then again he could be incredibly compassionate he could be empathetic he could be inspiring for people he could do you know kind gestures for people um you know he was very committed to all sorts of policy issues whether it's you know the advancement of women or the environment or ending apartheid or whatever you want to talk about he, he was very, very committed in a public policy sense, but he was very, very flawed as a, as a person.
1: But do you think if, if people had known more about, I mean, they knew about the womanising and the drinking and so on in the broad, but if they'd have known about the personal costs that that imposed at the time, he would have be, had this relationship that he did have with the Australian public or would they have been turned off by that?
2: Look, Michelle, I think even by standards in the 1960s and 70s, this is too much. It's it's just too much. Um, you know, I even found newspaper interviews where Hawke is talking to journalists about the kind of women that he likes um, and what how he liked them to wear their hair and the kind of clothes and shoes. Um, you know, it's incredible. And, you know, where did I find that article? I found it in Hazel Hawke's scrapbooks um, in Perth. Um, and in fact, I should—I mentioned this earlier today when I was talking about the book. There's an article that you wrote, um, Michelle, that I found, um, I think, just after Blanche Del Puget's biography came out in 1982. And the article that you wrote, Hazel had cut it out from the age and put it in her scrapbook. And she circled a paragraph. And the paragraph that she circled, you had written that a lot of these um, political leaders uh, you know, have flaws, they have faults. Um, and they regret them and they feel bad about them, but they wouldn't change. They wouldn't change anything. That's who they are. And Hazel thought that was significant. And you know, it's a sad thing to say, but when I interviewed Hawk for the last time, I said, do you have any regrets about being a husband and a father? And he said, yeah, yeah, I was a terrible father. Um, but I said to him, would you have changed anything if you could do it again? And he said, no, it's hard to hear someone say, <coughs> because he wanted the prime ministership. and he, he felt that he had to live that lifestyle and that was who he was and he, he wasn't gonna, he had regrets, but he wouldn't change it. So, you know, Hawke is a complex person. Um, I think my sort of shorthand at the end of the book is a worse person than we thought, but a better prime minister than we thought. And so, you know, it makes for interesting reading.
1: Another question? Andrea Cullen, firstly thanks Michelle and Troy for a very interesting conversation and for your time. I'm interested in whether you could shed some light on um, Bob Hawke's views on the institution of Parliament and its role.
2: Yeah look, he, um, he wasn't a big fan of Parliament, he didn't like Parliament. He thought He said many, many times he thought Parliament was a charade. He didn't like the fact that you went into Parliament and both sides knew what their position was going to be and they, but they have a debate anyway, and the debate has no impact on the outcome of the way they vote. And of course he had been um, the trade trade union movement's industrial advocate in the late 1950s, he'd been the ACTU president. So for for a 20 plus year period, he's arguing the case for changes to industrial laws, you know, improving working conditions, (coughs) lifting wages. Um, He's having to convince people about those arguments. You know, he's, he's appearing before the bench, the industrial bench, and he's making the case in very vivid um, ways. He would use logic and passion and facts and figures and emotion um, and he would win the argument. But in Parliament he got here and he found none of that matters. You could give the best speech ever, the most logical, reasonable, fact-based speech and it wouldn't change one mind. So he actually didn't like Parliament that well. And a lot of people, including Michelle, I've read, read your articles where people didn't think he adjusted that well to parliament and he didn't sort of fit well in the sort of nature of the of the of the chamber and its debates
1: whereas keating of course was uh, it was his theater wasn't it and yet he always opposed televising parliament because he knew that if people saw this sort of performance that he keating put on they'd hate it in their own rooms.
2: that's right yeah but Hawke, know. of course had respect for parliament and Um, And he he did try to work across the divide with with other other figures and he was respectful um, to to the opposition and uh, other MPs as well.
1: Another question, up here. Thank you, Peter Phillips.
4: Uh, Troy, I'm intrigued by subtitles on books. Mm
2: -hmm.
4: How soon in the process of your research and writing did you
2: arrive at Demons and Destiny? That's a good question. Um, uh, towards the end, the subtitle came to me. Uh, one of my, uh, the editor said, you need to break up a chapter, it's too long. Uh, it was a chapter at the end of the 1970s period, and um, it was a chapter that dealt a lot while with womanising and drinking and these emotions and things like that. So I'd called it, I can't remember, the. maybe a friend over there might find it, but there is a chapter, with the word demons in it. Um, and then I thought, okay, that's a good, that's a good word. Um, and then the book was originally going to be called something like A Matter of Destiny was the subtitle. Um, and I just put the two, two together and it just worked. Uh, demons and Destiny. So the definitive biography is not part of the title. That's just something the publisher put on. Um, but I'll take it and go with it. Or look, um,
0: thank you very much for your questions. And, and Troy, perhaps if I might... Um, I'll just mention that we you speak about that curability uh, agreement. We've actually got the infamous note, the Ian McLaughlin note... Oh, yeah, right. ..in our collection. Uh, happy to share that with you when you uh, visit next. But yeah, yeah. Perhaps if I can take you back, just because you and I had a conversation a little while back, and Michelle talks about it being a big book, but maybe you could share with the audience how you go about doing your interviews because uh, you, you know it's not just a matter of showing up is it and, and just hitting record there's a bit of work either side of the interview
2: yeah look interviews are hard I interviewed Michelle for the book she was generous to do an interview um, more than hundred people interviewed um, and you, you spent a lot of time on interviews you need to prepare you need to think about what can you ask this person about obviously look at things they've said or written before Um, and so I have a a list of, you know, questions that I want to ask. Um, but I've tried to anticipate the answers before I've done the interview. Um, so I know where they're going to go with something and if they don't say something that I thought was their view, I can prompt, prompt them to say what I'm hoping they might say or some talk about some story. Um, but sometimes, you know, the key thing for a good interview and look, you know, I've interviewed lots of people, but, um, there are many other expert interviewers here, um, you've got to listen. Listening is the most important thing. It's not just about asking your question. You've got to listen to the answer because sometimes they can say things that you didn't know um, or didn't expect and that might prompt another question. Um, and sometimes you, know, the, sometimes you get the best things out of interviews when you least expect it um, because they've said something that um, you, know, you, didn't, you didn't anticipate. So, but you know, to do a good interview might take me better part of a day's research to do a half hour to a one hour interview with someone. Um, and I'm conscious of people's time and so I wanna, wanna make, make the most of it.
0: And do you find the transcription service that's available in the cloud don't quite get the Australian accent?
2: Well, tra- transcripts are a big deal in my family because <laughs> uh, my mother did most of the transcripts uh, for this book. I paid her oh. um, <laughs> per word um, to do it. Um, so there's no no slave labor. H- we, have, we, have, we have good working conditions in yeah. my... <laughs> family uh, and my daughter did a few transcripts as well she was keen to earn some money there you go. Um, she actually did the Paul Keating transcript um, and uh, when, when she got to the end about Keating talking about the last time she saw Hawk she was in the lounge room with a laptop you know kids I so got three screens at the same time headphones on she's typing away and then she looked up at me and there are these tears you know going down her cheeks as she's listening to Keating, because you can hear because she can obviously hear his voice um which you can't do it when you're reading the book um so yeah so the transcripts you know i do some but i rely on rely on others Yeah, my mother was a court reporter in her younger
0: days and when she was watching the news i thought it was early onset of parkinson's but she's actually transcribing the the (laughs) news as she's hearing it but anyway ladies and gentlemen thank you for your participation it's now my pleasure to invite bernie wright deputy chair of the museum of australian democracy to uh, deliver a vote of thanks
3: well, thank you, Andrew, and thanks very much to you and your colleagues for arranging today's event. Um, what a rich and rewarding discussion it's been. We've been pleased to It's really been quite something. Um, what strikes me is Trent's ability to combine his passion for history, and um, his gifts for history with the rigor and discipline of uh, a professional journalist. I think to a remarkable degree, and as Andrew has said, uh, it's uh, Troy's Troy's 11th book. Um, So we are greatly indebted to you, Troy. Um, It's a distinguished contribution you make to our national life, at an event like this, um, a couple of years ago, I think, to do with the launch or a conversation about the book on Robert Menzies, um, uh, Troy was generous enough to talk about Heather Henderson as a living national treasure. That's how you labelled her. Well, I think you should be on warning a few more years. If this, <laughs> people might be throwing that that label at you. Uh, but we are so indebted to you, um, and to you too, Michelle. Um, if I, my calculations are correct, an eleven-year veteran of the gallery when Bob Hawke strode through the doors in uh, 1982, and relevantly, uh, by then chief Correspond- chief political correspondent for the Melbourne Age. So, um, uh, again, uh, talking about Parliament, no complaints about today's Question Time. <laughs> um, uh, we. Uh, Uh, it was just a a most generated such insights really that most of us can't wait to to get into the book. Um, I'd also like to say that I think Demons and Destiny and the conversation today um, remind us that our democracy isn't really to be dismissed with a wave of the hand because of its failings. Rather, I think both of you remind us that it is worthy of serious study and and serious consideration and discussion. Whatever its faults, it's it, it does it merits study. It rewards those who put the time in. Um, and of course, that's exactly what we hope to foster here at uh, MoAD at Old Parliament House, Camel and his colleagues, uh, and what the Howard Library is on about. So, um, thank you again from us all. And could I ask you all to please join in? thanking troy and michelle thank you. Thank, you very much.
0: thank you bernie ladies and gentlemen as part of the scholarly mission of the howard library we hold um, an annual conference on issues where the howard government experience might hold useful lessons for today's politicians and policy makers. Last year's conference has brought forth this book, The Art of Coalition, The Howard Government Experience 1996-2007. to 2007. Um, And this year's conference is on how governments manage crises with a sub-theme of Do Governments Learn? Uh, this year's conference will be held on the 23rd and 24th of June at the National Press Club and there's uh, information on this sheet here which is on that table there, if you'd like to grab that uh, tonight. Um, we probably have about 20 spots left, so um, it'd be great if we could see you there as well. Ladies and gentlemen, it does give me great pleasure in thanking Troy, Michelle and Bernie for their time uh, this evening. Um, I wish to provide each of you a copy of our new book. Um, and Troy, you have promised a review, so that's, that's part of the, thank you. Um, As a token of our appreciation, and perhaps Bernie, if you'd like to come up, we might do that as a group photo. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, if we could show our appreciation for tonight's speakers, please. Thank you. And thank you all for attending, and drive safely. Thank you.